we can use some analogies uh, like the body being a vehicle, you know, the mind being the driver and the spirit being the navigation system, which is, allows you to get from point A to point B. And for me, all of these things were not inside this vehicle. My navigation system was somewhere over here and my mind was somewhere here and my body was, hey, wherever we need to go, I'll take you there. And so for me, what I had to learn how to do is bring that navigation system into the car so I can find my, my way to where I needed to go. Because what we tend to forget is we're looking for guidance outside of ourselves. And a lot of times that's where you get lost. This is Prince Daniels Jr., retired NFL running back for the Baltimore Ravens, author of the book Mindfulness for the Ultimate Athlete, Mastering the Balance Between Power and Peace. Make sure that you find your power and your peace within yourself. Other than that, you are listening to Heads and Tails Podcast. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life. You can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. I'm really excited to have on Prince Daniels Jr. this week, who is a former walk-on running back at Georgia Tech. He was drafted by the Baltimore Ravens in 2006. He's an expert on mindfulness and meditation for athletes, and most recently, the author of the book, Mindfulness for the Ultimate Athlete. And today, we're going to talk about mindfulness and meditation and how that can help you transform your life after sports and also optimally perform while you're still playing. So Prince, again, really excited to have you on. I was wondering if you could start off by taking us through that career-ending injury that ended your, your football career and led to that transition that seems like you, you struggled a little bit in there. Yeah, so um, it was going into my third year. There was an offer on the table for me to be the starting running back or just be an intricate part in the Baltimore Ravens offense. And that was 2009-2010 um, season. And I remember like it was yesterday. I had a dream the night before that uh, I was Willie Beeman. I mean, Jamie Foxx from, uh, is that Any Given Sunday? The TV, I mean, the movie? Yeah, so during practice or during training camp, I was in the best shape of my life. I re remember coming back from the monastery. I, I went to go visit the monastery because I said, I want to have my mind, my body, and my spirit right. And just came back from visiting the monastery in the Ozark Mountains in Arkansas and came to a training camp in tip-top shape. Like water breaks, I took few water breaks because I was hydrated, I was, I was ready. So while we were in practice, we ended up running just a regular play. Ran a regular play and I broke a run. And as I broke the run, uh, for some odd reason, I decided I wanted to talk a little mess today because I was really feeling myself. Training camp was going really good and I tripped over my own foot as I was running. Looked back, I tripped over my own foot. As I tripped over my own foot, I tried to put my arm down and brace my falls so I can pop myself back up. And my momentum took me took me forward. I put my arm down, and instead of my arm allowing for me to pop back up, it just just kind of went over my head, and it, I tore my labrum in my shoulder. And I think I blinked out. I'm pretty sure I did because when I looked on film, there were certain things that I did not remember. So I blinked out from my body just being in shock. Then I woke up and just remember fending off the trainers and some players because I didn't want to be touched. I'm just like, what's going on? Like, get away from me. So uh, I ran back into the huddle and I realized that I could not raise my left shoulder. And I remember my quarterback at the time, Troy Smith, Heisman Trophy winner, Ohio State. 
he was just like, you all right, P? I was just like, yeah, I'm good, man. Let's go. And I was ready to get back into the, the groove of things. And I just remember having a grimace on my face. I'm just like, what's wrong with my shoulder? So I went to the sideline. And the, actually, the trainers came in and, and pulled me out, pulled me to the sideline and asked me to raise both of my arms at the same time. And I was only able to raise my right arm. My left arm could not go past, um, I'll say, my belly button. And from that moment on, I knew something was wrong. And so went to the training room. They told me that there's a possibility that I tore my labrum. And they told me I had two options. I can get surgery or I can see if I want to play for the season and just let it heal on its own. And the pain was so excruciating. I was just like, oof, I felt that I needed to heal because I didn't want to be broken up. I knew what I had to offer. And um, they treated me like, like, like a valuable player. The previous year, I was on IR, injury reserve, for four to four years for a hamstring injury, which actually did not um, did not warrant me, you know, being on injury reserve for the whole year. But the rules were different at the time. And so if, if I would have been able to come back off of injury reserve, then I would have played that year. But those injuries on paper, they pretty much added up to me being injury prone because I didn't play. But if I would have had the opportunity to play, man, I would have been extremely excited. So after going to the training room and I decided that I did not want to um, play that season and I just wanted to get surgery, I'll never forget Matt Stover. He came in and he started speaking to me about the transition out of the game. And I was a bit shocked. I was like, man, I'm still going to be playing, Matt. What are you talking about? And so he was asking me about my 401k and, you know, am I a better player? And all of these things. And I just remember getting hot, like, man, I'm not going anywhere. And it, it didn't dawn on me until afterwards. I went and did my rehab and at my alma mater, uh, Georgia Tech. And I stayed there. I stayed there because I was mentally, physically bruised. I was just out of it, just in my own world. My mind started racing and I just didn't know exactly what to do. So I, I sequestered myself. And just stayed there and rehabbed myself. I stayed in the one-bedroom apartment with only a bed and me and my dog. And I would get up every morning, work out, yoga, go and train, go and run in the woods. And just, you know, I said, told myself when I come back, I'm going to be like the bionic prince. And when I went back to Baltimore, they told me that they were going to go in a different direction. And so that also dawned on me and hindered me in a lot of ways as well, because here, I'm thinking that when I come back, I'm going to be the best football player ever, the best running back ever in the, in the league. And what I did not do was check in. I never really showed my face because, one, I was going through something at the time, and I didn't, I didn't know how to express that. So I sheltered myself, and I stayed away from everyone just to figure out who I am. And, uh, and that's something being the injury? Yeah, that was injury and just not being able to contribute. I was ready to play. I got so my, my rookie year, they didn't think that I was ready to play. But so I was still active on the 53, 57 man roster, meaning if someone gets hurt, then I'm available to go in and play. But my rookie year, they didn't think, they, they didn't think I was ready to play. I needed to, needed to develop some more, and I did. And so my next year, the next year, they were like, you will be number two. You are number two, potentially number one behind Willis McGahee. And then the next year after that, I was getting ready to go. Willis McGahee, he was the number one running back, but he had some knee problems. And so at that time, that's when LeBron McLean, our fullback at the time, he 
that was his year, which was supposed to be my year, but I ended up getting injured. So, yeah, it, it was just not being able to perform and knowing that my opportunity was there, but I missed it by just a, a little small injury, just tripping over my own feet. And all I had to do was not even put my hand down and just fall to the ground and get right back up. So at that point in time, I was trying to do too much. And that's how I injured myself. And so from there, after that whole letting go, when I, you know, not ten- tenuring me for the next year, I was pretty much lost because I didn't know what to do next. I was like, okay, I prepared myself to get back into football and nothing is happening. My ideal is not panning out. So from there, I decided to just kind of rest a little bit. had another workout with the Buffalo Bills. It It didn't go so well because I really didn't work out because I didn't know exactly what to do. So after the workout, I started working out like religiously. And no one called. So, and I worked out for 365 days of the year, like literally 365 days of the year and no one called. And so on day 366, I sat down and I asked myself, like, what are you doing? And so after that, man, I just had a self-identity crisis and I fell into a deep depression, trying to commit suicide. And and, um, luckily that didn't happen. And I spent a little bit more time at the monastery and I started practicing more and more meditation. I started diving deep in deeper into that. And that's what I really started relying on, just how to get in touch with my spiritual self and my higher self and and figure out where I need to go because at the point in time I was lost and I just reached my all-time low. And so I was in a dark place, but luckily going to the monastery, it allowed for me to have some illuminating light in the darkness. Wow. That's, that's an incredible story. And I appreciate you sharing that, what you would describe as like your lowest point. I know a lot of people listening to this, I'm sure can relate to every word that you were saying. I got a few questions uh, based off of what you said. So I didn't realize that you had actually gone to the monastery before the end of your football career. I must have missed that part in your book. So I guess like, were there any other players that like joined you? Like, how did you get that idea that like one day you just woke up and you're like, you know what, I want to go to a monastery and, you know, learn this type of lifestyle. It was pretty set up for me. I have two uncles that were already a part of the monastery. And when they would go, I was like, wow, they come back with this type of glow that I've only seen in movies or cartoons. And I was just like, I I want that. I want to experience that. And so that's what pretty much kind of inspired me to entertain the idea of going to a monastery because I don't think I would just went to a monastery just out of curiosity. You know, even though I would watch these movies, it was just something that was like, oh, uh, not sure. I have this this religious type of mindset, like, isn't that the, the Buddha stuff and this and that and had so many kind of preconceived notions about it and negative connotations. So it was, it was on the right and my family was a part of it. So I just followed their footsteps and it was something that I was called to do. And so when I went, it was like me facing my fears and any type of uh, internal doubts that I had. And I just wanted just to, to see what it was about. And so that's how I ended up going. And also it was like my lifeline. Like uh, I wanted to know more. I wanted to reach a deeper level. For me, when I first started going while I was playing, it was to like be the best like NFL running back that, that people have ever seen. So, cause I was always thinking about how to improve my game and I understood that, okay, I reached this, this level of the, the physical side of the game where I went from a four, five, a four, five, seven in the 40 to running a four, two, seven in six weeks. 
And that was with the core exercise that I, I shared with you in the book. And then from there, my mental game became a lot more stronger. I started realizing that the 500-page playbook that we had was nothing more than just schemes and just plays. And so that 500-page playbook became like a 50-page playbook to me because I started really understanding like, oh, this is a turnback protection, seven-man turnback protection, six-man turnback protection. Oh, on this, I have that. On that, I have this. Oh, this is what this person does. So I became a student of the game and I really started understanding the game of football. Gave you clarity, yeah. It gave me clarity. So I was ready to put all of these pieces together and just dominate on such a high level. And I knew that I did not want to plateau at just the mind part, right? Because everyone speaks about that. And so I was just like, well, you want to take this to another level, like a samurai level or, or um, a kung fu fighter, just knowing who I am so much where everything becomes effortless to me. The zone, like you described in your, the, in your book. Exactly. Yeah. The zone, which I described. Okay. No, I appreciate you explaining that. And then you mentioned that before the injury, you or you had a, a dream the night before. Was that dream like a positive dream? Like it was like you were going to score touchdowns and you know be the hero, or was it like you had a dream about having an injury? No, it was a positive dream. It was it was a dream about it was like you're going to be the man. It was no indication of any type of. Yeah, it's funny because I one of the main things I got from reading your book was really the power of like visualization. And when I think back to my own like you know athletic career, which obviously didn't reach anywhere close to the heights that you did, I'm like I definitely missed the boat on the visualization piece of the preparation leading into a game. Even like watching film, it's like one thing to like watch film and like see what the X's and O's, and it's another thing to like visualize yourself like in that play guys crossing your face, you know, like communicating and like having that in your head, like that's engaged, like <laughs> film work and visualization as opposed to just like passive. So I thought that was really cool. Then the other piece was you mentioned when you had gotten hurt, they said, do you want to have surgery or do you not want to have surgery uh, and try to play through it, which I commend you for not playing through it because I swear to God that my head injury was as severe as it was because I started with a shoulder injury and then I favored my other shoulder, hurt that one. I had nothing else to hit with but my head. Right. <laughs> but I always tell athletes, I'm like, it might seem like a minor thing, but like if you just sit out two weeks, like you'll be way better off, you know, in the long run. But you said that guy told you, do you have a plan for your transitional life after yeah. sports? And you were yeah, like, messed over. <laughs> yeah. Like, and oh. you're right. Like when I was, if I put myself in your shoes, I'd be like, oh, dude, like check yourself, man. Like, yeah. <laughs> what the hell are you thinking? Exactly. Like, yeah, like my career is not over. Like I have so much more in the tank. It's just, I was just like, it's my, it's my shoulder. Like, but who is that guy? Like, what's I don't I don't know. You said his name, but I like what's his role on the team? Oh, Matt Stover is a veteran. He was like a 15 year veteran uh, kicker. He was a kicker and one of the greatest kickers in the in the league. And so he was a part of, I believe, the NFLPA at the time. So a rep. And so he was, and also he was high up. So he knows the plans of the team. Right. So he knows players' personnel and what's going on with the team. And so he just kind of. Gave me that real talk, pulled me into a lot, pulled me aside, and, and he had that much respect for me. Like I, I've earned my respect uh, playing with the Ravens, you know, because they were like, they were the number one defense at the time, and so I did not mind going against the number one defense. In my head, I knew that I had an opportunity to go against the number one defense every single day. So in my head, I was just like, well, then if I'm going against the number one defense every day, then I, 
then when I go against the number two defense, I'm going to dominate when I go against the number three and so forth until the rest of the however many teams, what, 32 teams, you know, once we go through the season and we get the, and I get a chance to play all those other teams, and guess what? I'm going to have a field day. And so I take advantage of, of that. And my practice was my playing time. And so that's how I improved with being around people like Bart Scott, with Ray Lewis, Ed Reed, Samari Rowe, Chris McAllister, Double J. Um, yeah, those are some legends Dr. for sure, man. Yeah, right. Adelius Thomas. They improved my game. They made me. They made me better in everything that I did. It's interesting he said that, be, like to you. And at the time, I was like, "Whoa, dude!" Like because I mean, as being a veteran, he's probably seen your story like. 400 times right, right guys rolling right. through so like in his head he's like yeah i see like the writing on the wall for this one so he's just like looking out for you to be like all right like, what's your plan afterwards you know so i guess on that how did you go from that low moment of attempting suicide to i always call it the transformation to life after football because transition to me is like passive and like you kind of just getting beat around by the waves and like whatever life throws at you is kind of like what you're dealt. It is what it is. But transformation to me, it takes action. And to me, you don't get any better in your transition life after sports or get out of that low point without some sort of action. And I know, I mean, your book is countless examples of all the action that you took. So I was just wondering if you could explain to the audience what turned your transition low point into a transformation to where you are now and writing the book and stuff. So when it comes to transition, there are the three things that need to go along with the transition, the body, the mind, and the spirit. And for me, the spirit was still in still in the past of football. So it was still held on to that. That was the, the desire. The mind was just like, oh, it's a possibility. So what we've known is uh, what my mentality has always been. It's just like, stick it out. Stick through it. It's going to happen. And so my body was just like, oh, I'm kind of going with the whatever way that, that that the wind blows. And But we are going to be prepared whenever our opportunity comes. And so since everything was out of, out of alignment for me, if I would get a phone, I was waiting for a phone call. No one called. Or maybe someone did call and my agent would call me, but he would just give me like, ah, well, yeah, they, I, I mentioned you trying to package you with another player but they didn't show any interest, you know? So I'm like, all right, I just got to work harder. That's it. That's it. And so someone is going to contact me, but that never happened. And so at some point in time, my spirit was over here, my mind was over here and my body was just going with it. And I had to learn how to sit down and anchor myself. Cause see, when, when you are making a transition, just like when you're moving, when you're moving from one place to another, you got to take your belongings right? You can't just leave them there and be like, oh, I'm going to come and pick them up after we move into the new house, you know, in about two months. The new tenant is going to be like, man, get your SHIT and get up out of here. You know, so then you're not fully transformed or transitioning to the next thing. And so I still had some baggage, you know, some spiritual baggage left over, so some spiritual desires or some baggage desires, should I say, where they were still there and I did not know how to remove them or bring them over and find peace within myself until I actually started sitting down and calming myself down and recollecting my thoughts, recollecting my spiritual energy, recollecting my physical energy as well. And just really understanding like, okay, it's over. It is over. So now that it's over, we have to go in a different direction because my energy was scattered. And so I had to hone my energy and redirected it in another direction. 
And that's what allowed for me to look within myself, assess my energy and see it, understand it. Like, okay, I have all this energy everywhere. So now I need to go in another direction. I need to redirect it in this direction. And so I didn't have a plan. I didn't have a plan. It's just kind of out of it, not knowing what to do because my first, my plan A did not pan out. And so it created a void in my life. And so how did I become very depressed? Well, when you're going through the self-identity crisis and you have more negative thoughts than positive thoughts, then that's going to lead to a negative mindset. And when you're really hard on yourself, you don't mind harming yourself because you're angry at yourself. I was embarrassed. I was angry at myself for for not being able to accomplish the things that I wanted to accomplish, for not looking the way that others viewed me. And so I thought it would be just okay for me to off myself and not have to deal with my pain and agony. And, And so when it came to transitioning, I struggled with coming into this new role of who I am and accepting it. Because when you're a ball player, you're this high. You're regaled, you know, like you're loved. But when retired and your career is over, it's like, uh, who are you again? And that affects you mentally, psychologically, you know, emotionally. So I, I really took it to heart. I think what would be helpful in this part of the podcast is explaining the relationship between the spirit, mind, and body and that sequence that you lay out in your book and how one kind of leads to the next. So when it comes to the mind, the body, and the spirit, as you've probably heard, we've all heard, our listeners heard that um, things come in threes, right? In Christianity, it's like the mind, the, the Father, the, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, mind, body, and spirit. And there are other things that come in threes as well. What I've realized in my, me being a student of life is that when you have these three components, everybody has a body, everybody has a mind, everybody has a spirit. That's something that we can mutually agree with upon. And so what I understood was that I was caught up somewhere in the mental part for myself. And so what I knew is that if you had to put this on a scale of the body being the lowest on uh, on the scale. You describe it as like the tool. Your body is the tool. The body is the tool. Then the mind is like the the driver. If we want to do that, like we can use some analogies. Uh, like the body being a vehicle, you know, the mind being the driver and the spirit being the navigation system, which allows you to get from point A to point B. And for me, all of these things were not inside this vehicle. My navigation system was somewhere over here and my mind was somewhere here and my body was, hey, wherever we need to go, I'll take you there. And so for me, what I had to learn how to do was bring that navigation system into the car so I could find my, my way to where I needed to go. Because what we tend to forget is we're looking for guidance outside of ourselves. And a lot of times that's where you get lost. So what I've learned how to do is look within. Because when you start looking within, that's where your internal navigation system, your intuition, your instincts you know, it guides you whenever you're lost or whenever you don't know where you're going. If you're in the woods, you use your instincts. That's the only thing that you have left, your gut instinct, which is equivalent to the spirit. And your mind is looking for familiar things like, oh, I've seen that before. I've seen that before. Okay. I know we're on the right track. So it gives you confirmation. And then the body is just doing this part. Like, okay, we have to make sure that we stay alive, stay away from like snakes or anything or any type of bites to get through these, to get through the woods, to get to, to home or Calvary. 
And so when it comes to the mind, body, and spirit and aligning those things, this allows you to be in the zone or in the space that you want to be in whenever you are looking to overcome something, whenever you're looking to overcome your limits, whenever you're looking to improve your game, whenever you're looking to improve your life or your business. This is relatable and applicable to all walks of life, whether you're a business person, whether you're an athlete, whether you're a non-athlete. You know, we use our ma- our minds a lot and we tend to stray away from our spirit. And so when you can bring the spirit into the equation, you start to realize that you actually have more power than what you are familiar with using. Yeah. Can you take us through like when you're at that low point, take us through the sequence of like what the spirit, mind, and body did to get you to transform? Do you have like a specific example or? Yeah. So I was already working on my body. That was just ingrained in me. I played in a, being a professional athlete, my mind was somewhat there, just wasn't as strong because mentally I was constantly telling myself, I let myself down. I'm not enough. I didn't do this. I suck. This is embarrassing. And then the spiritual part was just more so trying to connect with my desire, what I wanted. And so, uh, yeah, it was a meditation that I had that I will say saved my life. And it was only like three, I had three minutes left. So on when I tried to plan my demise, it was a three-day plan where I basically pulled my weapon out and I would place it underneath my chin and pull the trigger and try to embody that feeling, prepping myself for, you know, the big day. And so day one was just did that with no bullets, but just trying to get used to it. And day two was scatter the bullets out and pull the trigger again. And day three was load the gun and commit to action. So I go in the living room. Uh, so that morning, on the third day of that morning, I load the gun and then I go in the living room and I make phone calls. I just decided to make some phone calls. I ended up calling seven people in total. The first six people were like my mother, one of my uncles, one of my professors from Georgia Tech, and one of my teammates and a couple and some uh, somebody else. I think my brother and a couple and one other person, two other people, and no one was able to tell me what I wanted to hear. And, you know, I don't think anybody would have been able to tell me what I wanted to hear. Because even within those those first six people, they were not able to tell me what I wanted to hear. The seventh individual still didn't tell me what I wanted to hear, but got my attention. And the seventh person was, I call the the monk, the head monk at the monastery. And just started lamenting to him, like, you know, like, I've lost this, I lost that, I've lost my mind, I lost my job, I've lost my woman, I lost my, I lost my condo, I, I lost everything. I just don't want to live with myself, I'm not happy with myself, and I am going to kill myself. And to the average person, you know, we'll be like, yo, you need to get some effing help. Like, we need to call the ambulance for you right now. Like, like don't move, don't do anything. And that right there, that type of response will drive someone that is thinking about committing suicide to go and commit it. Because it's like, oh, you're trying to stop me from from doing the thing that I want to do? No, no, I'm going to do it before you can even call anyone. And I purposefully did not tell the six individuals before that seventh phone call all of this information because they would have definitely driven me over the edge. So I called the seventh person, the, the, the head market from the monastery, and after I told them all of these things, he said, well, first it was silence of about, of about like five seconds. And he was like, are you done? <laughs> and that blew my mind. And that was the very first time 
I could feel and hear myself breathe. Like I felt myself exhale, like, am I done? What the hell? And it was like, meditate and hung up the phone. And it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> and so I'm, I'm grappling with my own thoughts. Like, what? what? Meditate, meditate. Like, how is this going to fucking save my life? You know, like, this is some bullshit. I need something to save me right now. Like, I'm in need. And all I hear was in, in the back of my head. It just echoed. Meditate, 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 meditate. So as I'm heading back to my room to go and blow my head off, let's just be frank. I'll be frank about it. I'm walking into my room. And as I look to the left, there's my meditation pillow. And it's sitting by a, uh, it's sitting in, like, in the window area. And it seemed like it was a little ray of sunshine beaming on it. I was just like, get the fuck out of here. Like, come on. <laughs> and so, sure enough, I said to myself, I, I, I will commit myself to one hour in this meditation. I'm going to sit down for one full hour. And if nothing happens, I'm going to go uh, harm myself. And that's what I did. And around 35 minutes, I know it's 35 minutes because that's exactly when I get the, the sharp pain in my hip. At that time, I would get the sharp pain in my hip because I had, I had big legs and big thighs, really big thighs, like running back thighs, basically. And so I'm sitting down in this lotus position with my legs crossed and like 35 minutes, I'm, fit, just, I'm feeling this physical pain, you know, in my hips. I'm like, oh, I need to move. I need to just get out of this position. I need to, I need to get up because this hurts so much. And to a point where I literally disciplined myself to stay in that position. But the pain was, was so excruciating, my whole body started sweating. That's how tough it was. And so, and then my posture was off. I was leaning to one side and I would keep straightening myself up and leaning to the other side and leaning forward because I'm trying to, I'm trying to run away from the pain. And later on, when I reflected, I started realizing that was a reflection of my life. I was trying to run away from the pain, trying to run away from the pain. And also I had a hard time supporting myself, which was also a, a symbolism of my, my posture. You know, like wanting to lean against a wall or sit in the chair to hold myself up to maintain my posture. So uh, I had to learn how to stand on my own two feet, you know, in life as well. So I, I'm struggling from 35 minutes on. So I got another 25 minutes of this stuff. And at 57 minutes, I opened one eye to see the timer. So I'm like, when is this shit going to be over? <laughs> you know, it's and, tough to sit with your own thoughts. <laughs> uh, it's tough to sit Especially with in that thoughts. moment. <laughs> yes. Uh, my own thoughts, my body, everything. And then afterwards, um, I never forget. I just said to myself, just effing let go. And I remember taking a deep inhale. And I took a big exhale. And at the end of the exhale, the outside of my knees hit the ground. Boom. And I remember my energy shot up from my body into my brain. Like, and I never forget, it became so silent where I was that I could hear. So I couldn't hear my thoughts. I was the one processing my thoughts. And I was in a, in, in a space that was so quiet, you, can, you could hear anything. And so for the first time, I heard myself talking to myself, like, what are you doing? And the first two answers were, I'm about to kill myself. And then the third question, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm about to kill myself. And that was my first realization. And so from there, the timer went off. It was like, bing, bing, bing. 
And it drew me out of the space that I was in. And I was like, whoa, 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 what was that? What was that? And I remember a tear streaming down my face. And from there, I was like, what the fuck was that? What was that? What was that? What what was that? Whatever that was, I want that for the rest of my life. And from that moment on, I never thought about harming or killing myself ever again. And I was like, I'll chase that for the rest of my life. Because whatever that was that I just felt, I need to feel that again. And that's when I really started diving deep into like, this stuff really does change lives. It really does help you. It was. I wish I would have adopted this practice at a very young age because I would have been further off. I would have known exactly what I need to do. Even when you're in the unknown space, when you tap into yourself by using the tool of meditation, it becomes a, a guide for you. Your, 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 it's your inner guide, your inner navigation system, your inner gut instinct. So that was my spiritual moment where I knew like, okay, there's something bigger to me and bigger to this life. And and I'm going to practice this meditation and I'm going to tell the world about it because like I've had my experience, I have my miniature glimpse of enlightenment. And the more you become familiar with that, the more and more it becomes more of a uh, less of a miniature and more of a of a bigger enlightenment. So that's what I wanted to chase. Man, I mean, I really appreciate you sharing that part of your story. I know you didn't even go that deep when you wrote your book yourself. I mean, so I appreciate that you... I got to save, save more more room for part two and part three. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Really cool. But obviously you explain how to practice mindfulness and meditation uh, with plenty of examples in the book. I know the listeners can grab your book and and learn those things. But I know like... I know before you started that story or at the beginning of the story, you took that big deep breath in and out. And, you know, I was hoping you could explain like the importance of breath in mindfulness and meditation. And it's funny when I think of like athletics, cause like a lot of times you're out of breath, like running and stuff like that. And breath is just such a big part of being an athlete. And I know like nasal breathing is a big thing these days too, and, and all sorts of stuff. So from your perspective, like why is breath so important? And why do you think it was like so life-changing like for you? When you think about the breath, it is the bridge between being alive and deceased. Let me say that one more time. When you think about the breath, it is the bridge between being alive and deceased. If you are breathing, you are alive. If you are not breathing, you are deceased. You are dead. And that's such a very simple understanding and so man, very profound. But we take the breath for granted. We take it for granted. We we don't know how to utilize it. And constantly we are taking shallow breaths. That's just how we, we, we naturally breathe, the inhale and the exhale. And you really are not familiar with elongating your breathing. The only time you actually take a deep breath is when you yawn. <sighs> and basically what that does, it, it's sending a signal to the brain that you are calm, you're ready to make this transition into the body being in a repose state and you're retiring to go to sleep. So when you practice meditation, when you start really practicing meditation and get deep into it, you realize that sleep is unconscious meditation and meditation is conscious sleep. So when you're practicing your meditation, what you're looking to do is to get the body to reenact the repose state of being asleep, but the mind is still active and you're conscious. So you can tap into your spirit. 
Because when you think about whenever you dream at night, you have these lucid dreams and you can pretty much go anywhere and do anything. Or you can be walking on the road and then all of a sudden you fall off a cliff and it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, but you don't have control over over your mind and you rarely have control over your emotions. So what you're looking to do is tap into that in-between space. And once you can actually fall into meditation without falling asleep, then you have made a, uh, a huge feat of learning how to align yourself, align your mind, your body, and your spirit. And when this happens, it's because of the breath. When you learn how to take those deep breaths and those deep inhales and elongated exhales, eventually they shorten. Eventually they shorten themselves. And then after they shorten themselves, then the breath almost is like non-existent. How I interpret that part, it's like when you're sleeping, you have these the dreams that you were talking about. You can like do anything. It's like crazy. But a lot of times you wake up and you're like, wait, like what happened again? Like you don't like over, you don't remember it. So from what I hear you saying, it's almost like when you're meditating, it gives you the opportunity to like dream, but remember it. Yeah. Just be conscious. Exactly. Be conscious, you know, because it takes a minute for the brain to actually realize like, well, we, we are actually in another space. Like we are, we are conscious and the body is sleeping, but we're active and we're alive. Like even when you sleep, you still meditate because the mind is still active, but it's unconscious. But when you are meditating, you're conscious and you are aware. And so now you can actually have control of the things that are going on in your dreams. And you're still in the dream space. And plays into visualization and all the things that we had talked about before. Yeah. Right. But the only thing that's, that's different is when you pop into your meditation, you can see yourself in the first person view, second, third, you can see everything. You can see the, you know, the totality of the universe, your connectedness, every single thing. And so it's just a beautiful space to be in. All right. So as we wrap up here, you've got a, an interesting dynamic uh, kind of, not contradiction, but like in your book, you talk about the balance between power and peace. And every, in every podcast I do, I always ask my guests to finish the podcast, what's your definition of toughness? And when I was reading your book, I was like, huh, I wonder if we put, what does you know, Prince think of toughness in the context of power and peace? My definition of toughness has changed over the years. And I think we've known toughness, you know, to be strong and powerful. But as I share my story of being able to sit with my own thoughts and discipline myself and not move from that space or the area that I was in and also try to maintain an erect posture, that's also a level of toughness. But I, I, if I have to give you like my understanding of toughness, I think it's just discipline, being able to be disciplined. Discipline to the point of where you're okay with going through the pain, sitting through it. That's like a, a Shailon monk. You have these warriors, they have to hold themselves in certain positions for long periods of time. And they're practicing their Kung Fu as well. So this allows for them to strengthen their mind to the point where you don't need toughness. You just understand that you've already endured pain. So now you set the standard of of understanding your power, your true power, and that's your will and, and desire and your discipline to will the mind to do the things that you need to do. Your peace, you can find your toughness in your peace by understanding that uh, when you find a level of peace, you find your level of power. They go hand in hand. And when you can understand that silence is more powerful than anything in the world, 
you find your true power. Because when you come out of silence, you realize that you can get everyone's attention. So say, for instance, you never spoken for three, four or five days. And the first time you speak, everyone wants to hear what you have to say. They're anticipating it like, what are you going to say, Kev? What are you going to say? And I see that as a sign of toughness because it's difficult to not speak for five days or three days or one day, let alone (laughs) or some hours. And that's where I can define my toughness within my power and peace through the discipline and the silence. I love that, man. That's a really cool uh, realization that you uh, came to. So yeah, just as we uh, wrap up the podcast again, if you could tell us a little bit about the Game Beyond the Game initiative that you started, I think that'd be cool for the listeners to maybe uh, join in on. Yeah, so the Game Beyond the Game was actually a business that I set up for professional athletes in the transition after the game. But for me, who I am, I work with professional athletes and high-performance individuals, teaching them how they can take their game to the ultimate level by learning and adopting the tool of meditation, but also understanding their vision, their purpose, and having the mindset to carry out that vision and that purpose and seeing it through. So that is what I do whenever I work with, you name it, all all these individuals. I'm the guy in, in the background just teaching people how to constantly speak to themselves in the proper manner and making sure that what you are saying to yourself, you're conscious of it and you're saying the right things. You're saying the healthy things. It's just in the same manner of how you eat your food. If you're going to eat some McDonald's, no knock on McDonald's for anybody that eats it. But um, it's not going to give you the proper nutrients that you need if you are eating the food that's going to fuel your vehicle, which is your body. And I'm not saying don't eat McDonald's or I am saying that don't eat McDonald's. But if you eat McDonald's, you know, everything in moderation. And I just tell everybody just everything in moderation. And uh, you explain all of this extremely well in your book, like with terms of the visualization and that, that transition, a lot of great tools in there. So where can listeners connect with you online? So they can connect with me online, one, through my podcast, my two podcasts, actually, my Game Beyond the Game podcast, which is on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and also my Prince Daniels Jr. podcast, which will be coming out late November, i say November 24th. If I'm not mistaken, I can look at my calendar, but I'm not going to do that right now. So, no, I think it's oh November 18th, November 18th, Prince Daniels Jr. show. And also, you can follow me on Instagram at Prince A.D. Jr., as well as Twitter and Facebook. And you can go to my website, www.princedanielsjr.com. Awesome. Prince, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your incredible story. And I know I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will be able to resonate fully with that. And I know you, you uh, really went in depth and I really, I'm honestly honored that you uh, told your, your story on, on the podcast. It's a, uh, it, it truly blows me away when people share these kinds of things. Um, really tough moments in, in their lives on, on the podcast. I'm going to link up all your all your links in the show notes, and I'll have a, a link to where people can purchase your book if they want to learn more about mindfulness and meditation and how that can help them uh, perform optimally. And I, you talked about that voice inside your head. Like I've got one of the worst voices inside my head in terms of how I talk to myself, but I could definitely. I mean, I did. I have learned from reading your book. So. That's awesome, man. Um, that's my ultimate goal. It's to um, impact people from my experience and my storytelling. Yeah, so please, you know, the way that people can support me is just go and get the book off of Amazon.com, Mindfulness for the Ultimate Athlete, Mastering the Balance Between Power and Peace, and leave a review. 
and tell me how, what you thought about the book. I have thick skin, so I don't, you know, I don't care what type of re review that you leave. As long as you leave one, I'm honored, and I really do appreciate it. I'm humbled by it. Thanks, Prince. Really, really appreciate your time, brother. Thank you, Kev. I appreciate you as well, man.